The following is from East Delta Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at www.eastdeltabc.com. In the beginning, God created the earth and he rested. He created man and he rested. Then he created woman and since then neither God nor man has rested. <laughs> uh, young son, dad, is it true that I heard in some parts of Africa a man doesn't know his wife until after he marries her? Dad said, son, that happens in every country. <laughs> uh, man put an ad in the paper, said a wife wanted. Next day he got a hundred letters saying mine's available. <laughs> uh, Okay, ladies, this is for you. Man was speeding down the freeway, and he stopped by, uh, was stopped by a police car. He pulled over. Says, uh, you realize you're driving 80 in a 60-mile zone, said the policeman. That's impossible, sir. I never break the speed limit. That's what the husband said. The driver's wife butts in and says, yes, you do. I'm always telling you to slow down. Then the policeman said, uh, I also noticed, sir, that you didn't have your seatbelt on, and you put it on as I was coming to your door. He said, that's not true. I always wear my seatbelt. No, you don't. I'm always having to tell you put your seatbelt on, said the wife. Stupid woman, can't you just for one time keep that big, fat trap shut? And the policeman was shocked. And he looked at the wife through the window and said, uh, does he normally talk to you like that? And she said, no, only when he's drunk. <laughs> so <clears throat> anyway, that's for our word from last week. Uh, and that has absolutely nothing to do with our sermon this morning, but I gathered them and I wanted to use them because next Father's Day I'll forget where they are, but... We're going to talk and continue to talk about a life, uh, living a life of purpose, and I want you to travel back with me. I wasn't here, some of you were, to 1940, to London, England. And uh, we're going back to look at Winston Churchill because he was a man that lived with a life on purpose. And incidentally, it is great to see y'all here. You know, it's... It's nothing better for a, for a pastor to come and for folks to come to church. It's great, <laughs> and it makes, you, it makes you feel good. I appreciate your time. I know it takes a commitment to get up and to come to church and, and be here today, and I am so glad you're here today, and it, it's great to see a full house here this morning. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But in 1914, uh, 1940, the world was in a crisis. Y'all know what that was, right? And Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany was overrunning Holland and France. He was taking over. Uh, the German advance had appeared to be unstoppable during this time. And on May the 9th, 1940, the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, resigned in disgrace. And what basically had happened is he had been duped by Hitler. He had been discredited. And when he resigned, basically what he did was he just kind of threw his hands up and said, I give up. See if, see if anyone else can handle this mess that we're in, that we've gone to. And, and it's probably safe to say that the outcome of the war and the future of Europe rested on the leadership of the new prime minister. 
So on May the 10th, 1940, Winston Churchill was called up to Buckingham Palace to see King George VI, and the king stared at Churchill, kind of, kind of quizzically stared at him with, for a few moments, and he said this to him, I want to ask you to form a government. And Churchill agreed. Now, I want you to think about that. The world is at war, losing the battles, and the king calls you in and says, I want you to take over and form a government. What, what would, how would you feel? What would you think? I can't, I don't guess we can explain that, but just is that thought in our mind. But following his appointment, this is what happened. Churchill met with political and military leaders. He set them all down, and they put together a coalition of governments. And uh, if I were church here, I would have uh, no doubtedly felt a lot of pressure. Can you imagine the pressure that he must have felt that must have come upon him? And, uh, and uh, uh, to realize the leadership that was before him and the task that was before him. But, but this is what he wrote. Churchill wrote this. <clears throat> As I went to bed about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. That doesn't sound right, does it? He's just took on this coalition of governments. He's met with uh, political and military leaders. And as he laid down to go to bed at 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At, at last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny. And listen to this. And that all of my past life had but prepared me for this very hour of trial. My warnings over the last six years had been so numerous so detailed, and now were so terribly vindicated that no one could deny me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or with want of participation for it. I thought I knew I had a good deal about it all. I was sure I would not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. What caused Churchill so much confidence during those hours? I mean, I want you to think about that. How could he have went to bed and had so much confidence? He's taking over a, an unprepared country against the greatest military machine maybe of all time that's ever been, especially up to this point, <laughs> and what caused Churchill to have this relief? And, and I think the answer is this. Churchill would say that he had built a life on purpose. He had lived his life with purpose. Churchill hadn't had an easy life. He hadn't had an easy career. He hadn't even had a successful life. But Churchill understood that he had a purpose in life. And everything he had done up to that point, all of his efforts, all of the, all of the place, all of the strategic things he had learned and all the things that he had done and all of his, uh, his training was, was training for this very moment. So as he looked back over his life, he might have said, you know, I've not been real successful. I've had a tough time. And, and it might have been easy for him to say, I, I just need to throw up my hands and say, well, it's somebody else's job. But finally, 
as the king called him forth and said, hey, this is what I want you to do, he said, I'm ready for the task because my life has been lived on purpose. And this morning, I want us to think about living our life on purpose. And I want you to think this morning, what is your purpose? We've been talking about this the last few weeks, and, and everyone ends up somewhere in life. And some people end up there on purpose. Like Churchill, we have to fulfill uh, our destiny, or we have a, a purpose or a destiny before us. And, and God places that. And he placed us here for a purpose. Now, I want you to realize this this morning. Wherever you are, if you're a born-again Christian, God has placed you where you're at for a purpose. Isn't that good news? <laughs> We're not just wandering around in the wilderness saying, what's God, God for me? God says, wait, well, I've got a purpose for you. I've placed you where you are, your circumstances around you, I've placed you there for purpose. You may say, well, I'm no Churchill, and, and you're right. You're not, but you are you. And that's a good thing, that God created us to be who we are. Our, our, my old country accent, we, went to, we were in Colorado, and, and we met people from South Africa, from Italy, from France, I don't think they even say France. <laughs> I'm not sure what he said, but he said, uh, I told Denise I was waiting for him to go, oh, monsieur. You know, he, he come in with and, uh, a bunch of people from Jamaica, and they would sit, and we would sit and talk to them, and, and when they would leave, I'd say, boy, I like to hear them talk. Don't you know they were going to back and go, go over to table 13, listen to that guy, you know, listen to him talk. But you know what? That's who I am. That's how God created me. He, I am who I am. That's what Papa used to say, you know, I am what I am. And, and we are what we are. And we need to realize that God has given us a personality. He has made us who we are. He's given us time and talents and gifts and relationships. He's given us all those things. And he wants us to exploit or fulfill his purpose in the circle of people we influence. Not to change who we are and not to... I've told you all this before. Denise has accused me of, of when we go to a, a Mexican food restaurant, of me talking. She goes, you embarrass me because you start, org or you start ordering with this Mexican accent. I said, I do not. You do too. Every time you, you, you start ordering with this Mexican accent like it. I said, I don't do that. I heard somebody say one time about a preacher, you know, he... He gets up and he talks to everybody like normal and he gets in front of the congregation and he changes his voice and says, we're gathered here together. We don't have to change who we are. We just need to be who we are and how God made us. Because he's made us who we are. He's planted us where we can grow, where we can bloom. And he wants us to be who we are about our Father's business. Father, folks, for us today, that, that just lifts up a burden off of us. We don't have to worry about changing and trying to be something we're not. Now, here's the thing. God will change us in the areas we need changing. The Holy Spirit will convict us of things. Hey, you need to change this. You need to consider this. You need to be doing that. We get that through a time of teaching, through a time of Bible study, through the Holy Spirit moving and, and, and teaching us and us becoming more like Christ. But, but, but He wants us to be who we are and to fulfill God's purpose for us. But the sad thing is a lot of people never realize they have a life of purpose. 
A man started a hobby of writing famous philosophers and scientists and other people and authors and asking them this. What is the purpose of life? Now, I want you to listen to this. Their responses he got back were depressing at least, or at best. And I don't know these people. You can get on the Internet and you can find them. Isaac Asimov wrote back, As far as I can see, there is no real purpose in life. Carl Jung, he's an Australian psychiatrist, he wrote, I don't know what the meaning of uh, the purpose of life is, but it looks like if there was anything, let me try that again, but it looks as if there is something that should be meant by it, and that's life. He says it appears that there should be something meant by life. Arthur Clark, this is in 2000, he wrote, I'm afraid I have no concrete ideals of the purpose of life. Albert Ellis, another psychiatrist, he invented RET therapy. He said this, as far as I can tell, life has no special or intrinsic meaning or purpose. Thomas Nagel said, I'm afraid the meaning of life still eludes me. With kind of a sense of of resignation, Joseph Heller wrote, I have no answers to the meaning of life, and I no longer want to search for any. Isn't that sad? These are some of the top minds in the world. And all of them wrote, I have no idea. I don't know what the purpose of life is. I don't know if there's any meaning of life. And on top of that, I'm tired of searching for anything else. Welch poet, poet, David White, he wrote, I don't want to have written on my tombstone when finally people struggle through the weeds, pull back the moss, and read an inscription there. Well, he made his car payments. He said, we are designed for more than that, and God has a purpose for our life. And until you discover his purpose and follow through, there will be a hole in your soul. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? I don't want to live my whole life, and then years later, someone dig through a graveyard and wipe the moss from the stone to say, well, he made his car payments. Was that his purpose in life? Was that our goal in life? So there's one individual in Scripture that I think kind of stands out. There's so many in Scripture. I mean, I think Moses is a great example of someone who lived life on a purpose. But, but a, a, another great example we find here in Nehemiah. In, in 587 before Christ, B.C., the Babylonians had invaded and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. When they come in, they destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And, and 80 years later, the Jews had returned to Jerusalem. This is after the Babylonians had, cap, had captured them. But things were no good. They didn't look good. There was, the temple was destroyed. The, the place wasn't maintained. The sacrifices in the temple, they had all ceased. And the Jews had kind of adopted a lifestyle. And I think America is there today. Kind of adopted a lifestyle of culture that, that just kind of fit in with the surroundings. But God had chosen the Jews to be something different. But because of the circumstances and because of their captivity and because of the decay of the people around them, 
The Jews just kind of fit in with everybody else. Doesn't that look like America today? Don't you see us sometimes as Christians saying, what can I do? This is bigger than me. I, I, just, I just need to accept it. The Supreme Court says gay marriage is great. Let's just accept it. What can we do about it? I started to preach on that this morning. It makes me sick. But what can we do about it? Hey, that's just our culture. That's just where we're headed. But we see Nehemiah, and he comes in the picture, and, and back in Persia, he was a man about to be used by God, and, and his name was Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's about to discover what his purpose is. And let's start there in Nehemiah chapter 1, <coughs> and let's look about how we can live a life on purpose. And what I want to do this morning is we're going to, we're going to finish up here in just a few minutes, actually. And I want you to begin right now thinking about what is God's purpose for me? Even as we begin to read this, what is God's purpose for me? Now, the words of Nehemiah, the, ha the son of Hakaniah, and I looked these names up, and I don't know why they named their, their people so tough, but that means a gift from God. In the month of Kelvish, in the 20th year, while I was in the Ciudadela uh, Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's brother comes, he visits with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah says, Hey, what's going on down in Jerusalem? And what about our Jewish, uh, our Jewish folks? How are they doing down there? And this is what they said to me. Those who survived the exile are back in the providence in great trouble and in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates have been burned with fire. And look at what Nehemiah did. When I heard these things, I sat down, and I wept. For some days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah got the word that Hey, things have gone south in Jerusalem. Your people are living in trouble and in disgrace. He began to cry. He began to mourn for his people. He began to pray before God. And then he said, verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. That's the key to our purpose. Day and night before your servants, the people of Israel. And I confess the sins of Israelites, including myself and my father's house that we've committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, the decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses, remembering the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But verse 9, he says, But if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even in your exile, people are at their farthest horizon. And I will gather them from there, and I'll bring them to a place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You know what Nehemiah did? He went back and said, God, you made a promise to Moses. 
And I remember Moses telling us, if you're disobedient, God's going to scatter you. And if you're disobedient, you're going to go into exile. But if you'll come back to me, if you'll confess that you've sinned, if you'll turn from your wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, and I'll heal your land, and I'll restore your people. And Nehemiah said, Lord, you said you'd gather us back, and you'd bring us together, and put us in a place that's been chosen for you, a dwelling by your name. Verse 10, they are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great and your mighty hand. Now, if you're following along in Scripture, turn over to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. When the Lord came to Sambalah and to Tobiah and to Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies, as I rebuilt the wall and did not gap, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalot and Gresham said to me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent message to them with this reply. Listen to this. I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. And why should work stop and I leave it to go down to you? Now, that's a good question. We're going to address that next week. But this morning, as we think about what, are, what is your purpose and what has God called you to do, there's one thing I want you to write down this morning. If you're taking notes or if you're going to try to remember something from this morning, the first thing it comes to living on purpose, if you'd say, I really don't know how to live on purpose, I... I, I agree with you, but, but I'm not sure how to get there. Here's the first thing. We need to cultivate a concern. Did you hear that? Cultivate a concern. A life of purpose always begins with a concern that God has given you. And I believe every person here, God has given you a concern about something. And for us to live on a life on purpose, we need to cultivate that concern. Churchill spent six years learning and preparing and strategizing. Why? Because God had given him a concern years before. He, he gave Churchill this concern that says, you know, there's going to be a time that, that these things are going to be needed by you. So as you think about what is your God-given purpose... Begin to cultivate that concern. Look at Nehemiah 1.4 again, or 1.1 through 4. In late autumn of the 20th year of King Actresi's reign, I was at a fortress of Susa, and Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had survived the captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those uh, who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble. They're distressed. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. The gates have been burned. And when I heard this, I sat down, I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. You know what Nehemiah was doing? When he heard that message, it raised a concern for him, didn't it? I can just imagine he must have went, hmm, well, that's troubling to me. 
I'm really concerned about that. And if he began to think about that concern over Jerusalem, it consumed him. It got in his mind, and for days he thought about it. He prayed about it. The Bible says he even fasted about it. And he began to look, hey, this is something that, that I'm cultivating. I'm, conf- I'm cultivating a concern that God has given me. And it stayed on his mind from that day, and, and it was bad news. But he realized that God had given him that concern, and, and he began to cultivate a concern. And you know what? God's purpose for you will always begin with a God-given concern. So as you're thinking right now, what are you concerned about? I, I'm not even going to start naming things, because I have no idea what God has put on your heart. But, but what are some things... You're concerned about, I'm not talking about a passing concern. I'm not talking about it's 1144 and lunch is getting cold. I'm concerned about that because that's going to pass here in a few minutes. We're going to be through. We're going to eat. We're going to move on. (coughs) I'm talking about that concern that sticks with you. Andy Stanley, he wrote this. You will hear or see something that all of a sudden it gets your attention. And though related to you in the future, it will, it will generate some type of emotion. And something will bother you about the way things are or about the way things are headed. Unlike many passing concerns, this thing is going to stick with you. And you'll find yourself thinking about it in your free time. You may even lose sleep over it. And you won't be able to get it out of your mind because it won't let you go. See, if it's a God concern, if God has placed... Let me just give you an example. Maybe God has, God has placed your neighbor on your mind. And he has a purpose for you ministering to your neighbor. That may have scared some of you right there. You must, whoo, wait a minute. I ain't no preacher. I'm not either. I'm just, I'm just a sinner that's been saved by grace that God said, I want to use you for something. But God has given you a concern over something. And it's not just a passing concern. It's something that's kind of stayed with you. It's, it's something that God kind of birthed within you. And then as he's birthed this within you, it's, it's maturing and it's growing in your heart right now. Here's a few observations, and this is what I'm going to close with. I have three things that are observations. And I think this is where we trip and stumble when it comes to our purpose. And, and God's giving you an ideal. And what do we tend to do when God gives us a great ideal? We go to somebody else and say, listen, I've got this ideal. Now y'all do it. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? I do that. I'm not going to lie. Man, if I get a great ideal at work, I don't do it. I go tell somebody else, hey, this is what we want to do. Now y'all go do it. But if God's giving you a concern... Who did he give it to? He gave it to me or you. He didn't give it to everybody else. And the problem is we stop and we start waiting on someone else. But here's the thing, a few observations. Not everyone is going to share your concern. Does that make you mad? Just say yes. It does, doesn't it? Man, you get excited. God's giving me this concern. You tell somebody about it, and they're like, well, that's real good, you know, sounds good. And you walk away and go, well, that makes me so mad. 
Because I have this great ideal. And God has placed this concern on my heart. But not everybody's concerned about it. Did you notice that in Nehemiah about the wall? There's, there's a bunch of Jewish people in Jerusalem. The walls tore down. The gates have been burnt. They're down. Nobody's concerned about it. They're living with it. They're going through day by day. But God gave Nehemiah a concern. And even though everyone didn't share in his concern, he went to Jerusalem. And he said, you know what? We're going to rebuild the walls of, of the Jerusalem. We're going we're to put the doors back up in Jerusalem that's been broken down. And as I read about Nehemiah, I get the impression that, that no one else was crying and no one else was calling out to God and no one else was concerned about the walls. And it's possible that God has given you a concern and in your concern you haven't cultivated it because no one else is concerned about it. But God's given you that concern. We need to stop waiting on people. God's given us that concern for a reason and we need to start cultivating and praying about that concern. So the first thing, don't let this get you down. When God gives you a concern, not everyone's going to share in that concern. Here's the second thing. Not everyone who has a concern will do anything about it. In other words, this morning already, some of you might have thought, well, God has really been uh, putting this on my heart. I, I just now realize that I, I can remember these things, and God has been putting these things on my heart. And, and the question is, do you think that anyone else tried to rebuild these walls? I bet they did. Don't you think probably somebody got out at some time and, and, and started trying to rebuild these walls? I think some even tried, but, but they, had just getting, they had just given up. They, they said, I'm going to try this a while, and, and they given up, they've, they've gave up. And, and the reason being is, is they didn't follow through on their concern. They simply started the process, and... And, and there's two different effects. Either we're concerned and we act, or we're concerned and we don't act. So when God gives you a concern, he, he gives us a reason to act. And here's the last time, God often gives a concern before he gives a solution. So you might be sitting here today saying, I've got this concern. I'm willing to act, but man, I just don't know how to. I, I don't know how to. I don't know. I don't know how to act. And and a lot of you have God has God given concerns, but but you haven't done anything about it because you can't see yourself as the solution to the problem. Amen. You ever been there? I can't do that. That's what Moses did, wasn't it? He said, God, that's you got the wrong man. I'm a stutterer. I can't do what you want me to do. I can't be a part of the solution. Nehemiah. You know what he was. He wasn't a wall builder and a door hanger. He was a cupbearer. You know what the cupbearer did? The cupbearer drank and ate the king's food to make sure it wasn't poisonous. That's what the cupbearer done. And, and that's what Nehemiah was. He, he was. he wasn't really in a position to do anything about broken walls. And he could have said, you know what? I'm a cupbearer. God's gave him this concern, but I'm not going to act on it because after all, all I'm supposed to do is eat and drink. I could be a cupbearer. Y'all know that? I mean, that, that's a job to have, isn't it? Because unless somebody's out trying to kill you. But, but you know, Nehemiah, he, he, he went there, and, and God gave him concern. And, and a lot of times when God gives us concern, the, the answer won't be immediately obvious. But you start going through the process. What did I say? You begin to cultivate a concern. 
you begin to pray, okay, God, here's a concern that you've laid on my heart. God, I don't see myself as part of the solution, but you know what? I want to act. I want to begin to move forward to fulfill this concern. I don't know one thing that God has given you, but I do know, and I believe this, that God has given every one of his children a concern. Maybe for your family, your children, maybe for children of the community. I, I said I wasn't going to do that. What, whatever it may be, he may have given you a concern that's unique to you. We have Buckner shoes on the table. Charlotte Rainey kind of took that over. She, she, she heads all that up. We have uh, Christmas boxes that we're going to start collecting. It's in the announcements today. At some point, God has raised up a concern for someone. And in their mind, they became a, a, a thing. God, this is, you, I've got a concern about this, and, and here's how I want to act. Maybe nobody shares the passion that you do. Maybe some people share to a little bit extent, just a, just a little extent of what you share in. But God has given you a passion. And I want to ask you to do three things this week. I want you to pray about it. If God leads you, I want you to fast about it. And then I want you to bring it before God. Right now, I want you to bow your heads. And just as we just run through some ideals, I want right now just to... just to think about what has God placed on your heart as a concern. For me, I can say, oh, that's bigger than me, and I don't see how I can be a part of the solution. But think about this, Nehemiah is a cupbearer for the king. We're going to see next week, he, the king finally comes in and says, man, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? Boy, you, you've been down and depressed and... Nehemiah shares his concern with the king. The king says, well, go on and do it. He started with prayer. He started with fasting and spending time. You know what fasting does? It just keeps that thought on our mind, something that replaces what we do every day, that concern we have. And he brought it before God. Somebody said, there are many things in life that'll catch your eye, but only a few that'll catch your heart. And when something catches your heart, pursue it. The first action to live in a purposeful life is to cultivate a concern. Father, I pray this week that as we even think now, we want to live a life on purpose. I don't want them to pull back my weeds and moth from my tombstone and just simply be written, well, he made his car payment. But, Father, I pray that each of us would understand that you've placed within each of your children a purpose. You didn't save us to sit soaking sour, but you saved us to come and serve you. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't be discouraged when others don't share our purpose and the zeal that we may have. I pray, Lord, that we would know that we're serving you, not men. And we don't serve you to be seen by others, but we serve you out of a purpose in our heart. 
I pray, Father, as you give us purposes that we simply wouldn't choose not to act. And, Father, I pray that as you give us purposes, we would see ourselves as part of the solution, an opportunity to move forward and serve you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit today would just take these foolish words and confusing things that I've said, and, Lord, that you would make them straight and plain in our heart and in our heads we'd have an understanding of your desire for us. I pray that we'd know there's a burden lifted from us, knowing that you've given us a job, you've given us the tools and the training, and we just need to be obedient to you. And Father, today we know that first step of obedience is accepting you as our personal Lord and Savior. And I pray now as we go to a time of invitation, Lord, that you would direct us into yourself, as your spirit moves, we would move, whether it's for purpose of our daily life or it's for the purpose of accepting you as our personal Savior. I pray right now that your spirit would move, that we would respond to the wooing of your spirit, that you would lead, guide us, and direct us during this time of invitation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.